Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury and Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over Britain show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In the second episode of the series, Karen Lear and I visited Navy Wings at Yeovilton, where we did a hangar tour with Lee Howard and Rob Jones. This episode had some background noise because there was an operational hangar with lots of work going on on some of the aircraft. We started the tour by looking at one of the fairy swordfish. Okay, I'm in the hangar at uh, Yeovilton and uh, I'm here with Lee Howard and Rob Jones. Um, we're standing next to the swordfish. Which swordfish is this one? So this is um, the Mark 1 swordfish, uh, W5856. This is a very rare aircraft indeed, not, not just for the fact that it's swordfish, uh, but also because it's the only Mark 1 swordfish in existence anywhere. Not just the fact that it's airworthy, but anywhere but there's no other Mark 1 in, in existence. Okay. And uh, this particular aircraft has been with Navy Wings and its predecessor, the Royal Naval Historic Flight, for a very long time, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. Yeah, so it was uh, originally restored by British Aerospace at Ruff um, and first flew in 1993 and it was then gifted to what was then the Swordfish Heritage Trust uh, and uh, on behalf of the Royal Navy Historic Flight. Um, originally it was in a pre-war paint scheme for HMS Art Royal 810 Naval Air Squadron, but when the aircraft was uh, 
rebuilt and had its, its first new engine fitted in uh, 2015, the opportunity was taken to change the paint scheme uh, into the one that you see before you now. Okay. Now, you mentioned the engine, and that's always been something of a problem with this anywhere in the world with the swordfish flying, isn't it? But the, the Bristol uh, well, engines. I mean, the, the, the issue with, with these engines, as with all old engines, is just the supportability of, of them and having the spares. And Pegasus are very rare uh, engines. So, um, but, but really, now we're in a, a very good position in terms of having um, new spares manufactured for, for the aircraft. So the, the supportability going forward is, is really looking very good. Okay, well that's good. In that case, we might actually get a Wildebeest flying one day. <laughs> That'd be nice, not. wouldn't it? It, it would, would be, be very nice. it'll never happen. Nice. In um, terms of this aircraft, we are, we've just had this air, um, engine refurbished um, with our partners at Retro Track and Air, who do a lot of the heritage um, engines in the UK. Um, we've got a second engine that's going through at the moment, should be testing in um, September. And then we're going through with the third engine. So there's going to be a lot of resilience in the engines going forward that we've not been able to have before because we're in the process of, I mean, this aircraft is flying. Um, and then we've got LS326, which is another, another swordfish, which is going through another restoration program, hoping to come on the stream next year with uh, the engine that's being done in September. So you might end up with two flying at the same time? We will definitely end up with two flying. Um, and we hope, fingers crossed, by the time we get to the airshow season next year, we'll have both of them up. I'm going to have to come back, aren't I? Definitely come back. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's fantastic. It's good to hear. Uh, you know, with such rare aircraft types like this, um, how many are flying in the world now? Just this one? Just or? this one. It, yeah, because there was one in Canada, but there's no longer. So the one in Canada is now over in the UK. Oh. It's also being restored to fly. Okay. Um, so you, might end, up with, you yeah. might end up with three flying. Yeah. So we're working closely with them. So okay. leaning on the expertise that we have here. Um, and hopefully, yeah, fingers crossed, we'll have three flying in a couple of years. Wow. I'm definitely coming back. <laughs> <laughs> so the history of this particular aircraft, was this um, actually on carriers during the war? or did it? So we've got no evidence to prove that it was actually on a carrier. However, it was, and this is very recent news actually, in the course of my research, it was found that it was on 813 Naval Air Squadron uh, in 1942. And it went to Gibraltar, to RAF North Front. Okay. The squadron at that time was ashore at North Front. Uh, they had a detachment which was on board HMS Eagle, the aircraft carrier. Um, and the carrier at that point then sailed as part of Operation Pedestal yep. and was sunk. So she had a very narrow escape. Uh, however, the, the thing that really stopped her flying uh, from an 813 squadron perspective was that she had a, a, a night accident. She, she crashed in bad weather. Yep. Uh, and again, that's all new information that's just come to us. Um, and thereafter, she was repaired and she ended up being taken out to Canada, where she was used by the Canadians for, for conducting the training for okay. the telegraphy stair gunners. We've just been um, photobombed by uh, the sound version of photobombed by the Seafire which is doing engine runs at the moment. Nice. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> <laughs> and so this will be flying uh, in the issue season 
this year. It's, um, it's already been flying, yeah, yep. it is It is airworthy now, yep. um, and it will be flying at a show this weekend. Yeah, it's at Swansea this weekend. Cool. Tell me about the paint scheme. So the paint scheme that she's currently wearing is, is the paint scheme of 820 Naval Air Squadron. Okay, yep. Um, as flown by the senior pilot and the commanding officer of the squadron during the attack on Bismarck. Right. In 1941. Yep. yep. So at the point at which we chose this paint scheme, there really wasn't a lot of information about 5856's wartime career. So it was pretty much a blank canvas. Yep, yep. Um, and the other thing that influenced the choice really was because at that time, 1941 into 42, the, um, the paint schemes on Swordfish were starting to get toned down quite substantially. Yep. So you were in a position where if you went for one of those later schemes, they didn't have a lot of markings on them. And also they were very dark. So if you were flying the aircraft on a typical uh, a typical British Summer's Day air show, the chances are you wouldn't see a great deal. It would be pretty much a silhouette. Yeah. But this particular scheme, uh, we've got photographs of the aircraft that this is based on, on the 4 Alpha. And... Um, it's, as you can see now, it's using the, uh, the sky grey paint scheme which comes very much up the side of the fuselage yep. and that just adds to that sort of visual signature for the airplane. Yeah, absolutely. That's, a, that's actually a really interesting um, consideration for an airshow aircraft is that it will look nice to the public watching it. I mean, camouflage is to make it disappear but you want it to stand out, doesn't it? Uh, and, and that's the trouble that, that you know, because I, I did the research with the paint scheme and it, 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 was, it was very tricky to try and find something that was interesting, had a story behind it, but also was easy to see. Yep. Um, and, you know, from my own perspective, taking photographs, that's what I was concerned about was the fact that otherwise I would just be taking pictures of a black silhouetted swordfish. But, uh, but, but I think well. from charity's point of view, we're trying to get as authentic as we possibly can and that's where we lean on historians like Lee to be able to provide us with something which is as authentic as we possibly can get it. Yeah. Um, we have other aircraft as you see as we go around which are far more visible yes. uh, and we've taken some liberties with but for these aircraft we're going to go in for historical authenticity. Right. Well shall we move on to the Seafury then? Yes yeah. sure. Uh, so Seafury FB11 VR930 uh, this was built in 1948, and the scheme that you see her in now is her original paint scheme from when she was first issued to 802 Naval Air Squadron okay. in 1948. Yep. Uh, we got photographs of her during the, uh, the South African cruise that, that year, um, taken ashore, uh, and that's the pictures that I used to recreate the paint scheme you see here. Okay. So how long has this one been with the, um, the flight here? So again, BI-930 was very kindly rebuilt by British Aerospace at Brough, and she joined the flight in 1997. Okay. Original Royal Navy Story flight in 1997. This isn't the one that had the wheels up? No. Isn't it? Yeah. No. So no. How, how many have you got? Have you, is this the only one now? Just one. Just the one, yeah. Okay. Um, so do you want to tell yeah, me so about... Yes, we, we had um, Seafury T20, which had a force landing which was not recoverable. Yeah. Um, and then there's been, we've also had the FB11, which is a single-seater, but that only had the dual-seater. The, the 
conversation since that incident has been, what do we do with this aircraft? Do we bring it back to flight or do we not? And it goes off to a museum or something because we know that the issues with um, sea fury engines have been ongoing. At the point that we had the, the forced landing, we had veterans writing in saying things like, this is the only aircraft that tried to kill me twice and, and things like that. You know, don't fly that engine. So we've had a lot of debate around, it comes back down to historical authenticity again, of what we do with the engine. And the trust is taking the decision that we'll, we'll re-engine this aircraft in order to get it back on the, on the show circuit rather than just leaving it in the hangar with an engine that is not reliable enough for us to be able to fly it. Okay. So we're in that process at the moment um, of moving to a Pratt & Whitney engine for this aircraft. Oh, okay. Well, that'll get a lot of people talking about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's that debate. Do we leave it on the ground? Because we don't believe that, or we think that in the future the Centaurus engine will seize up. Yes. Yeah. Or do we take a pragmatic approach and get it flying? And, and again, we think these aircraft should be flying. Um, and we've got a C-Fire here as well, so we know that the C-Fury and C-Fire pair will look amazing on the show circuit, and we think that is the more pragmatic decision for us to take. I, I agree, because, um, you know, experience now, years and years of them flying with Brett and Whitney in the States, Yeah, they're reliable exactly. as. I mean, they race them. and Exactly. They're, they're great. Yeah, we've watched the videos of Reno. It looks fantastic. Yep. So, yeah, so we took it, and it was a really tough decision. I think we've talked about this for two years. Um, but come down on the side of, no, we want it flying with a reliable engine that we are confident in and have plenty of spares for. Okay. So, so that's the decision. Um, we're on track at the moment to get this um, back um, up and running in the spring of next year. Okay. So it'll be on, on the circuit next year. And when the engines change, is it going to go to the four-bladed prop? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's no option, is there? Yeah. It's, it's got to, it's yeah, got to do that. Awesome. Which is, I mean, it's, just, yeah. And I know so there's a lot of debate, and yeah. um, I'm sure our social media channels will be absolutely full of it as we, as we start to fly her again. But the only alternative was to um, push her into a museum. Exactly. Yeah. And keeping her flying is just great. I mean, there's a lot of sea furies in museums. There's yeah. Not, there's not that many flying. Exactly. And the reason this charity exists is to keep these aircraft flying. It's not to keep them in a hangar. So um, everything here is dedicated to trying to get these aircraft back in the sky. And they're incredibly rare. But as you say, you can go and see them in museums, but you can't see them at air shows. Yep, that's right. You can't see them at all in New Zealand. <laughs> So uh, you've got a Harvard here, I guess this is... Non, Non-traditional colour scheme. Yes, yeah. I'll paint job. Lee didn't advise us on this, this scheme. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put on tape. <laughs> yeah, let's turn that down. So we got this in training aircraft to be able yep. to get get pilots up to speed with um, Seafire and Swordfish. Just made sense when we had the opportunity to acquire it that, that we got this one. Yes. Yeah. And of course the historical link there is that during the war this is what the pilots would have flown on. Yes. Some of the ones who were taken from uh, their initial training in the UK, they even went across to Canada, Canada yeah. and they would have flown on harvards like this. Yeah. And also they flew the uh, uh, naval What's the Navy version over there with the US Navy? Uh, oh, the SNJ. SNJ, a lot yes. of them through them. So the, the, yes, in the ones that went to America, so America, the likes yeah. of Pensacola, they would have flown the SNJ. But yeah. um, for the Canadian ones, and it was, it was just a Harvard. Yes. Yeah. So, what mark of Harvard is this? Oh, this is the Mark IV. Mark IV, okay. Yeah. Um, is, this, is this got a 
British history? Is it a no? Uh, from you're testing my memory now, but um, this was uh, one of the aircraft that was provided to the German government um, at the end of the war. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not got a British history, unfortunately. Okay. That's still cool. Harvard's a cool. It's still cool. It's very noisy as well. Yeah. And so this actually um, is only training, or will this turn up and fly past? No, this, this does displays as well. Yep. 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 And, and it's, it's good for us in terms of our visibility on, on the airshow, so we could have something where we're static displaying or we're displaying to say that we are Navy Wings, because the challenge we have is we are a publicly funded charity, so we, we need to let people know that. Uh, and this is one, one way that we do it, by slapping Navy Wings on the side of this aircraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. Uh, I'm sure it must be pretty vibrant sitting on the yeah. flight line and it will stand out and the kids will love it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so we haven't gone for the full historical authenticity on this one. Yeah. So. Is this a bulldog? It, it is a bulldog, yeah. So there's, there's a number of aircraft in here that aren't part of Navy Wings. Ah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so that's a, a privately owned aircraft as one of the uh, pilots from the uh, flight. He owns that all. There's a group of them that own it. Yep. <coughs> um, so the next aircraft from the wings is really the chipmunk. Okay. Um, the seeking behind, we are just um, keeping here four historic helicopters based on Inchard. Oh, okay. So disasters figured winter here and it's still here for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why. So that's a privately owned expedition? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's the only Mark IV seeking that's still flying currently. Okay. And this is a rather beautiful looking chipmunk here. Again, part of the training regime, I guess. Yeah, yeah it's part of the, part of the training um, syllabus for, for the pilots. They will learn to do their tailwheel training on this first before they then transition on to the other types. Yeah. Um, in terms of the history of this one, so this, this, as with all the other Royal Navy chipmunks, joined the Royal Navy or rather the Fleet Air Arm in 1966. Um, it took over from the Tiger Moths that yep. had been used up until that point. Uh, so this was the Britannia Royal Naval College flight that was based down at Robert and at Plymouth. Yep. Uh, and they were eventually withdrawn from service in the early 90s. And, uh, and this and another aircraft, which you will see in the corner over there in a minute, were uh, effectively gifted to what was the Royal Navy Historic Flight and then on to uh, Navy Wings. Okay. And this also goes out to a few displays as well, or is it... Yeah, um, it's incredibly yeah. popular because there was such a huge community of people that, that flew these. Yeah. So anybody who's got a connection with the Fleet Arm has either flown yeah. one or has family that flown one. So, so yeah. the chip is incredibly popular when we take it out. They're a great little aircraft. Um, do you do aerobatic displays in it or just... Fly past type stuff. Yeah. It's fully aerobatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah, no, it's fully aerobatic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. so you have to think carefully if you're offered a, a flight with one of our pilots. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's another aircraft that isn't technically part, I don't think, Rob, I'm not no, saying that. It's not, not technically part of uh, Naval Wings. This is owned by the chief engineer, this is own private aircraft. Okay, this is a lovely so, camouflage tiger moth here. It is, yeah. Yellow undersides. Um, so again, it, it's in keeping really with the whole story of the fleet air arm in terms of the training. So during the war, this is what the pilots would have trained on during their elementary flying training. And then on, go, go on to the Harvard as their intermediate training and then on to front line. Yeah. 
Now, um, in talking with fleet air arm pilots in New Zealand, they all came to Britain. They initially, most of them did their initial training in Tigers here with the RAF. Yes. Um, did the Navy have their own Tiger Moth during the war, or was it all RAF training before they went on to the next stage? So in terms of the training, then it was RAF. Yeah. So the elementary flying training schools were all RAF units. Uh, the, the Navy did have their own Tiger Moths for other purposes, for okay. things like station flights yep. and communication flights, um, but for the training that was, that was RAF. So this is de- depicting an RAF one? Uh, yes, it's, it's in, in an RAF space. Okay. But uh, not, not dissimilar to what it would have been under one of the elementary flying training schools that the Navy uh, people would have been trained for. Right, okay. So uh, when you guys are going out to air shows with some of your other aircraft, will the chief engineer take this sometimes or it gets out and about? Yeah, it does get out and about. And again, it's unusual and and pretty popular out in the circuit. Very cool. We're going to look at one of our restoration projects. So this is LS-326, the Mark II swordfish. Oh, wow. Oh, uh, currently under very deep maintenance and rebuild. Uh, this is the first time, essentially, that the aircraft has been rebuilt to this standard, or rather this depth, since 1955. Okay. Which is quite astonishing, really. Um, what you can see there is the aircraft has got the tail has been removed. That's currently being stripped of paint and being repainted yeah. um, in the same way that the rest of the fuselage that you see has been done. Um, the forward section of the fuselage there, the, essentially the grey bit that you see, is, is a replacement part um, because that was from the Mark III sawfish that the flight have already got as well, an F389. Yeah. That had been restored by British Aerospace at Brough again, they did all the restoration on the other aircraft. They'd done that um, back in the early 2000s. Okay. But at that point, the uh, the project got paused because of manpower issues with British Aerospace. So that got brought back down to Yeovilton. Um, but it was felt that it was simpler to graph that onto 326 and then look at 326's front fuselage in slower time right. um, yep. to get the aircraft ready earlier. Yep. Um, so, um, But the, the, there's no real difference to it. It's just that... Uh, it's in a much better condition than, than the original one was, which will just take a bit longer to, to recondition. Yes. Yeah. What's this huge... Is, is that all fuel tank? Or? That's a fuel tank. Oh, yeah, that's the main fuel tank. Yeah. Um, I can't remember how many gallons that holds now, but we're talking around about a five-hour of endurance. Yeah. Wow. And it's a big engine, so I guess it needs all that fuel. Yeah. It's quite remarkable to see one like this all stripped back. I haven't actually, it, you know, the only thing I've got to compare with would be the Wildebeest that uh, at Wigram. And looking at the structure, it's similar in some ways and quite different in others. Um, but even though they're very similar aircraft in size and era and usage and all that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, and the other thing that's notable about this particular restoration is, is the work that has been done in terms of uh, the historical accuracy. As Rob mentioned there, it's very to make sure that they are as historically accurate as possible. So the colour you see there is perhaps a, a, a colour that's unusual for restorations. Normally you would be looking at an aircraft that would be green. green yep. uh, this colour actually has been matched to the original paint that was found in some of the parts of the structure 
that had previously been covered over. Okay. So this is a that was original factory finish paint, and that in itself is very rare because all the sawfish that are around in museums are either being completely restored and therefore all that information has been lost, yep. or they were completely devoid of paint because they've been set out in the field yeah, and yeah. whatever. Yeah. So very lucky to be able to find that information, uh, and the guys had that all paint matched. Uh, so that is as near to original as, as you can get. That's quite remarkable. It's no doubt going to raise some eyebrows when people see that for the reason I've just outlined there in yeah. terms of the colour you'd expect to see. Yeah. I mean, it looks very modern, that colour. There's a, you know, it's a, more of a, a much later era to be having the grey rather than the green. Yeah. Fantastic. Did the rear seater lie down for aiming? I mean, there's a, obviously not when there's a so, so there is there is a hatch at the bottom there where you can look down through for yep. dropping certain stores. Yes. Uh, but normally, so you'd have so it's a three seater effectively. You've got yep. the pilot, and then in the middle cockpit there you've got the observer. Yep. So the observer in RF parlance is the navigator, mm-hmm. uh, and then behind that you've got the telegraphist air gunner. So the telegraphist air gunner operated the gun uh, at the back and also the radios. Okay. Um, the observer in the, in the middle was the effectively the tactician, as, as they are still to this day. The observer is really the, the person that fights the aircraft, that uh, uh, gives the pilot the instructions on, on what to do. Yep. Um, and for for instance, in the case of five eight five six, I spoke to you there about the uh, the fact that it was the senior pilot and the commanding officer. Well, actually, the senior pilot was, as the name suggests, the pilot, yep. but the commanding officer was an observer. A lot of the time during the war, okay. commanding officers were observers. They were they were usually the most senior uh, officer on the squadron. Oh, interesting. Um, but this aircraft, um, the, the interest that you will have from in your listeners from New Zealand is that this aircraft was uh, built in 1943. It was issued to 836 Naval Air Squadron, which was the largest squadron in the fleet air arm at the time. Their main purpose was to provide aircraft for the merchant aircraft carriers, the MAC ships. Yes, yep. And this particular one was issued to uh, L Flight, 836 L Flight, which at the time was on board the uh, MAC ship Rapana. And we know from records that in, so that was in September 1943, in November 1943, during a across Atlantic convoy, uh, that she had an accident and the name of the pilot is recorded in the records for the accident and his name was Sub-Lieutenant uh, Robert Beaumont Tate, Royal New Zealand Naval Volunteer Reserve. Right, okay. Wow, that's pretty cool. So uh, just to explain to the listeners, um, the Mac ships were grain carriers or oil carriers, they were tankers type, type of ship right. with a flat top and they didn't have any decks underneath or anything for the aircraft. The, the aircraft just sat on top, and they'd have like f- usually four swordfish on them on board. Wouldn't yeah, depending depending on which you had. If you had an oiler or a grain, you had either yep. three or four aircraft. But yep. you're right; they didn't have any hangar space, so the aircraft were lashed to the deck yep. in all weathers. Um, so, by that fact alone, it's a miracle that this aircraft survived yep. um, as long as it has done. But uh, but yeah, they were pretty pretty horrendous conditions that they operated in. Uh, the, the worst conditions, of course, were the ones for the Russian convoys. Yep. 
and and you really have to take your hat off to the individuals concerned. And, and again, you've always got to remember that these people were these these men were only just men. They were 19, 20, 21 year old yeah. doing that sort of activity. It's really astonishing to think back and it's very difficult sometimes when you look at old pictures to actually see them as young men that, that they are that young yeah. well another thing too about the Mac ships they weren't big like a carrier they were fairly small ships so if you take off hunting a sub that might be thought to be in the area and the weather's not so good finding your way back to a tiny ship I suppose there's a convoy isn't there but I mean but, but even so I mean the, the, the records show the number of times that uh, aircraft got lost yeah. and ended up having to ditch yep. and and when you're in a convoy the last thing that the convoy wants to do is to slow down or stop to pick you up yes. so it, you were really the, the risks were extraordinarily high for these people yeah, yeah definitely it's, I think it's part of history that's been forgotten those Mac ships there's not, there's not a lot out there on them uh, I'm, I met as I told you earlier, I met uh, Ralph Coughlin, who was a um, Mac ship pilot, and yeah, really interesting stories here and, and, and seeing his photos. And he actually crashed one on the deck of one of the ships. I think it was a Mac ship question. Um, but yeah, it's but uh, it's also a testament to just how robust the aircraft are. Yes, that they survived. Yeah, he, not, he's, not always immediately, but they were they survived sufficiently to be repaired and put back into service. Yeah, he, I remember he did say that they didn't usually repair anything on a Mac ship if it was damaged it went over the side and, you know. It was quite often the case, yeah, they were yeah. stripped for spares and then they yeah. were just, yeah. yeah. And that's the interesting thing, when you see the aircraft in this condition, um, there's not a lot to shoot at, yeah. really. Yeah, true. So it's the, the fabric covering um, of the wings, and you've seen how, an example there of how large they are. Yes. but. I think these survived with a huge amount of um, ordnance shot through the fabric, yeah. but still kept flying. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think too. Um, I, now, I, this is this would be interesting to know because I talked to a chap who was in Singapore flying um, Wildebeest, and he said that they he, they were quite successfully bombing the Japanese who were coming down the way because the the Japanese just expected it to be a lot faster than it was and they kept shooting in front of them yep. and it never hit them and would that have been the case often with the swordfish or did the absolutely yeah. uh, the most famous example of that of course is when they attacked Bismarck right the the guns on Bismarck were, were not trained to uh, they were trained for fighters much faster moving objects yep. not swordfish and what they did they, they ended up having to fire their shells effectively into the sea to create water spouts oh. to try and knock the aircraft out of the, the sky. Wow. Gosh. Yeah, it, it, it's, its slowness was, in many respects, its strength. Yeah. yeah. There's also the, the story that goes around, everyone says, oh, the, Alba, the albacore was meant to replace the swordfish and then wasn't good enough. But the albacore pilots that I've talked with, they, they love the albacore. Especially the fact that it was, uh, you were indoors, you weren't out in the, in the air, and you know it had a bit more power and all that sort of thing. Well, the albacore is, is very much, as you say, very much overlooked when yeah. you then consider that it was used very successfully in the Channel during the operations against uh, a lot of the uh, E boats yep. and R boats, uh, but also an, an, an area of fleet air history which is very, very much understated, and that is the operations in the desert. Yes, exactly. A lot of people don't 
associate the Navy with flying across the desert. Yeah. But of course, the strength there and the reason that they used them, they used them as, uh, they, they were used in conjunction with the RAF as pathfinders. Yeah. So they were the very first pathfinders before yeah. Bomber Command came up with the concept, it exactly. was the Navy that were doing that. And the exactly. reason for that is because the observers were used to navigating across very large swathes of open ocean yeah. with no features, yeah. just the same as a desert. So they could use wind-finding techniques and, and that sort of thing to navigate their way through. But again, you had instances where albacores would be flying at relatively low levels with wellingtons over the top of them, and they would be dropping flares to mark the positions of the enemy, exactly. and the wellingtons would drop their bombs from above, and there are instances where the bombs actually struck the aircraft below. Right, okay. So... Very, very dangerous. I, I met uh, a pilot, Sandy Brunt. He was a Kiwi. He was flying the albacores, doing that exact thing. And he said it was actually three services working together because he said uh, if the Army's uh, reconnaissance guys had spotted German convoys or, or any sort of uh, fuel dumps or anything, they would mark out using um, flares or petrol flares or whatever, they'd mark out big arrows for the albacores, light them, and so at night, they're just flying along and they're following the arrows until they could actually see the target. Then they'd light up the target with their... They would, they would do two things, that the albacores would drop flares and they'd drop bombs just to get the fire going. And then, of course, the Wellingtons came in from um, 37 Squadron and the likes of that uh, and hit the targets. And what's been completely forgotten is that that work they were doing at night actually was one of the key things in the big breakout from El Alamein to, to keep the, the Allies just rolling forward because they were taking out all of those Germans that, that were just ahead of them. And it's incredible, really. It's just been forgotten. Yeah. The, the Albacore was incredible. It, it was doing all sorts of things in all sorts of... Yeah, it's um, much maligned. Yeah, oh, it feel, is. Um, it really annoys me. For whatever reason. <laughs> and it looks good, too. Not as good as a swordfish. Oh, no. <laughs> That's a huge wing when you look at it. It oh, is. Yeah, it's enormous. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely and they're very heavy as well. So are they all metal structure inside, or is it wood? What? Um, so they're metal and wood okay. inside, and, and, uh, and the fabric, and that's all strung together as well. Yep. Uh, there might be one over there actually where you can see inside the structure. We'll look at that in a second. Okay. Um, this is what I was telling you about the paint. So that's the underside of the sea anchor box. You can see there the original paint. Oh, yes, yes. So that's what we've mapped to forward structure. Okay. Yeah, there's not much to it when you feel it. Nah. Wow. The really good thing about sorting uh, and we did it on 5856 and we will be doing it on 326. If you look at these construction number plates here, they've got the numbers on them. You see this one here, it says AOL B3 and then there's a four digit number. Yep. So what these are, because the sawfish was built in and around Leeds in West Yorkshire. Yep. Uh, and then it was assembled at Sherman and Elmer, the main Blackburn factory. Yes. So the vast majority of them, of course, the vast majority of the sawfish were built by Blackburns, not by Ferry. Yes. But this tells you what the individual manufacturing company was that produced this particular component. Okay. 
and they were all engineering companies. Okay. But they weren't aviation engineering companies. They did a whole range of different things. So, for instance, you had companies that manufactured lawnmowers, uh, companies that manufactured cars. Um, there was one in particular that uh, manufactured later on. It manufactured the the outer casing for the Blue Danube nuclear bomb. Right. Yep. Yep. So that one there is AOL. So that's Apple Yard of Leeds. That was a, a car garage. Okay. And they've only recently gone out of business. Wow. Okay. So they've lasted that long. The B3 stands for Blackburn. That's the code for uh, indicating it's a Blackburn component. Yep. So again, it's Apple Yard of Leeds for Blackburn, and that's the individual number. Okay. And when you walk around the aeroplane, you can see all these different codes. You get AOLs, and you get um, uh, Ts, and, and various different letters. But they all tell a story, which is how the aircraft was manufactured in and around yeah not by one company that's interesting yeah yes yeah. Yeah, so this is the next restoration project okay so tell me about the Seahawk then um, Seahawk FGA mark 6 WV908 uh, this aircraft was in service until 1960 yep the color scheme you see it is really 806 naval air squadron which were known as the ace of diamonds you see the ace of diamonds painted on the front there yep uh, and these really were a second-generation jet fighter for the fleet air arm. Uh, the first generation, essentially, would, would be the attacker, which was a tail-dragger uh, jet aircraft. It's a novel concept for, for an aircraft, but uh, that's what they were. Um, so this joined the flight. It had a, a strange way of joining uh, what is now Navy Wings, essentially, because this was restored by... Uh, HMS Seahawk, which is uh, Royal Naval Air Station Coldrose, yep. in the late 1970s. It had originally been uh, a, a ground instructional airframe. So they took it on charge and they restored it and they flew it for a few years. And then in 1982, it transferred to the Royal Navy Historic Flight. Okay. They transferred the whole, the whole aircraft across. Um, and she's sort of flown sporadically since then for various reasons. Um, again, as with all these aeroplanes, it's just it's finding the spares um, to keep them airworthy. Yeah, I can imagine that would be quite a problem for that sort of era of jet these days. I mean, yeah, it's not the easiest of aircraft to work on either. Yeah. As you will see when you walk around here as well, you've got to have very small hands. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and lots of band-aid as well to put on your knuckles when you go and scratch them. <laughs> yeah. But this was another big decision for the charity in terms of um, restoring and flying a jet. Uh, because we had um, Sea Vixen um, in the hangar until recently. Um, and that's at the wheels up landing here at, uh, at Yeovilton. And, and then there was a, a real drive to try and get that flying again. Um, going through the process, we realised that the cost of doing that would be prohibitively expensive. Um, but we did have the Seahawk um, in storage, so we decided to focus our efforts on, on getting the Seahawk flying. Okay. That makes sense. What's happened to the Sea Vixen? Was that it sitting outside? Yeah, it, it's going to go off to a museum. Oh, yeah. We just, as a charity, we just did not have the resources uh, to be able to get that aircraft um, back up and running and then actually be able to run it, which yeah. was going to be quite expensive. And I imagine in the last year, running things like this has got much, much dearer with the fuel prices going up. And 
Yeah. Inflation. It must be quite difficult to run a charity like this, I imagine. Yes. Yeah, it does. And it does need um, quite a bit of funding. We're very lucky. We've got some fantastic supporters um, and a wide base of supporters as well. They're really keen to see these aircraft and these traditions um, continue uh, and to see them on the airshow circuit rather than just going to see them in a museum. Yeah, exactly. How does the charity run? Is there like a club, like a members club? Or how does... Yeah, we have um, a number of ways people can get involved, whether it's one-off donations or whether it's becoming a supporter. Um, and if you're becoming a supporter and you're making regular payments, then we have six or seven days a year where we host supporters in the hangar so they can get up close to the aircraft, they can talk to the engineers, they can talk to the pilots, all those kind of things. So they can get kind of hands-on and understand how their money is being spent in terms of the restoration projects. But also then we have special air days. We've got one coming up at the end of July in partnership with a with a local airfield where we'll be displaying all of our aircraft that can display at the moment um, as a kind of a, a way for our supporters to see kind of their funds in action. So yes, there's lots of different ways. We run events for um, kind of low-level fundraising, high-level fundraising, everything in between yep. uh, to try and keep this whole thing going. Cool. Well, good, good work because it's, uh, it's quite impressive. Isn't yeah, and, and you know, it's been a challenging couple of years with COVID um, and the air show's just not taking place, but, but we've focused on um, kind of telling the story of naval aviation, engaging as many people as we could online, which is great why you're here today and we can talk about it. Um, because without people being interested in these aircraft, then this whole thing stops. Yeah, exactly. It, it's great to keep the history alive too and the next generations are starting to learn about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got, I think we've got a visit of um, air cadets coming in either later on today or tomorrow. Um, and we're definitely on that circuit. You know, so the youngsters are getting into aviation are all coming through the hangar. Great. Excellent. So wander down that way? Yeah. Yeah, so you can see there with the tail separated from the main fuselage. Um, that's where the bifurcated exhaust sits yep. from the engine. Yep. A very tight fit for the engine. Uh, I think it's a long time since the engine went back in, not so long since it came back out, but it's uh, you're talking a couple of inches either side to get the engine in very, Gosh. very tight. Wow. Yeah, which is yourself. Did you want to grab anything in the wasp? Oh, yeah. Just this yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, all right. How's your head again?
Restoration on that was started some years ago, but unfortunately had to be postponed. Um, and now the guys and girls here are doing the restoration themselves. All oh, right. And that's where we join the the group eventually. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So in terms of restoration, was it just tired and needed? I mean, a it, it hadn't flown so. This was one of the aircraft that, uh, that so when Britannia Royal Naval College gave up the chipmunks, mm -hmm. they gave two aircraft, they gave WK-608 and they gave WV-657. Yeah. Uh, 657 at that point wasn't airworthy, only 608, so 657 effectively was a spare ship for 608. Okay, yep. But re really having two aircraft really gives that flexibility. Yes. Because currently we're very much reliant upon having one aircraft doing the tail wheel training. So this, especially with the number of aircraft that come on stream, and when we're talking about having the second sawfish as well, there's going to be a much greater requirement for um, aircrew training pipeline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ah, very cool. So the um, the wasp, does that? Who does that belong to? Is that belongs to Navy Wings? Yeah. That is part of. Okay. Are there any other helicopters? Just the no, it's just the Wasp. Yeah. Um, but, and we acquired the Wasp mm, two and a half years ago. Right. Um, it was an opportunity to acquire it, so we wanted to have a helicopter within, within the um, collection of Navy Wings. Okay. Uh, and the Seafire, is that privately owned but operated? No, nope, uh, that belongs to the charity as well. Oh, it does? Yeah. Okay. Gosh. I think they pushed that back into the hangar if you want to come and have a look. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. I was transferred last year, the end of previous year. Okay. End of the previous year, that's right, Yeah. Yeah. That boss is a You can see there, earlier on about the opulence. Um, clearly this is not what it would have been like in service, no. but not too dissimilar to that. Um, certainly in terms of the control sticks there with the, like something from a ship. Yeah. So this one isn't ours, this is owned by a private individual who hangs it here and um, generously allows the charity to, to use this aircraft, oh, right. which is great as a support aircraft and looks fantastic in its own right when it's out and about in the circuit. Does. This is the Stinson Rolando yes. we're talking about. So. Gorgeous looking machine. It was in the circuit when we approached here and looks looks so nice. And then we have a Mark 17 Seafire. Wow. So this of course was found on the rubbish dump. Oh right. Okay. Uh, this was one of a couple that were found uh, by uh, a couple of uh, enthusiasts back in the early 1970s. And essentially, it was just the fuselage at that point. 
and it went through a, a number of hands and eventually ended up with Kennet Aviation. They did the restoration on it yeah. and it first flew in 2006. So the local interest for this one is that this was actually built at Westlands, which okay. is only seven miles away. Yeah. Uh, currently where they produce all the, all the vast majority of the Navy's helicopters. Right. Uh, okay. Westlands did a lot of Seafire and Spitfire manufactured during the war, uh, and this was one of them, as I say, in 1946, this made its first flight from Westlands. Um, did this end up serving in like Korean War or anything like that? or? No, so the, the Mark 17 didn't. The, the Mark 17 was essentially used for training. Yeah. The um, it, it did use, uh, it was operated by a couple of frontline units, but in terms of the Korean War, that was mainly the CFR 47, which was the much bigger aircraft with the contra-rotating propeller on the front. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really gorgeous machine. So we'll see this out and about at the air shows over the next few weeks. Yeah, this um, this aircraft will be at well, some of the air shows at the moment. Um, mm. This is at Shuttleworth on Sunday. Yep. Um, and then yeah, it, it's out nearly every weekend at the moment. Um, it closed the air show at um, the National Armed Forces Day down at Falmouth last weekend. It has great reviews. It sounds amazing. It looks fantastic. Yeah. We spend our lives telling people it's not a Spitfire. Um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly popular. I had two different Seafire pilots tell me um, all Seafires are Spitfires, but not all Spitfires are Seafires. That's <laughs> they both said that independently. I like that. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. And of course, it does have folding wings on it, as proper yeah. Seafire should. Right. Which are manually folding. We don't. There's not a, an automatic function on this. It's not hydraulically folded, so it's a lot of elbow grease to to fold them. Yep. Yeah, well, thank you very much for the hangar tour. It's fantastic to be here. It's Pleasure. Absolutely amazing collection. It really is. You're very welcome. I hope you get to see uh, some of the aircraft out in the circuit as you spend the next couple of weeks here. Yeah, I, I hope so too. It's going to be uh, good to see some of these, particularly the swordfish. Uh, yeah, and this is the first year in, in quite a few years that we've been flying here regularly at, the, at air shows around the UK, so it's a, it's a great thrill to be able to do that. Great stuff. Well, thanks again. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.